when I look at back in my career, whenever I might have failed or maybe fail is a hard word, but felt like, you know, it hasn't gone the way I would have wanted to or I haven't grown as fast as I wanted to. It's been, I always look at myself and say, you know, what did I do wrong? What should I have done? And politics has not been my thing from day one. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge and my guest today is Philippa Nogani. Philippa, you have such an interesting collection of things that you do that I'm just going to hand it over to you to do a little introduction. You can focus wherever you like. Thank you, Ledge. Yes, I am actually a serial startup marketeer, as I described myself. I worked for many startups throughout my career at early growth startups, specifically. A lot of it has been mainly in the fintech and SaaS world. But today, however, I am with a large IT consulting firm uh, named Vertusa, and I'm also a part of the leadership team and the board as a marketing chair at NYC Fintech Women, where our mission is to empower women in their career in fintech. Absolutely. I, I imagine that has the proverbial formerly male-dominated industry type of vibe in, in fintech. There must be a lot of interesting conversations now love love to hear about that you know i i think it's interesting that on your linkedin that's listed as your your first thing you know that that you obviously have a, a lifetime you know passion project there and and I, I think that's exciting because it's not you know career isn't just limited to what we do to get paid and I'd love to hear some of the stories that that got you into these things yeah absolutely 
when I started my career in freight forward and logistics, so absolutely off <laughs> the fintech world, but you know, mostly I have been in male-dominated industries and, and overall in general. And oftentimes I am the one female in the room, the one female at the conference, the one female at the table. Luckily I am that one female on the table that's better than zero. I think, you know, very early on in my career and I pulled for that opportunity, obviously always trying to bring in others and be supportive of other women in the field. And I've been lucky to work for some of the greatest leaders who have empowered me to be where I am today. Even in my company today, we are mostly male-dominated industry itself, company as well. But I'm working for someone who is extremely passionate and his focus is to empower women. So that's really, you know, what keeps me going. Yeah, absolutely. And what's it like in such a big group, a 6,000 fintech women? I mean, it's just like a, a dominant force. I, I would love to hear what the organization is about. Yeah. So at NYC Fintech Women, we are um, basically it's volunteer bases, right? So we are a group of volunteers. I would say our team is probably 30 individuals who work across different uh, industries as well as within the banking financial services fintech, but others who actually are interested to make a career move into the fintech world. So they volunteers with us. Myself, I have a team of 10 individuals who are supporting, volunteering, and executing on the marketing strategy that we are running for NYC Fintech Women. And that's how we built the group. So we've created a lot of content, and our goal is to support founders, women in their careers. We have a call and call fintech thema fridays and other programs where we try to really empower and create this great group of women where we are there for each other whether it's about you know career moves that you're trying to make or you just want to educate yourself about the industry and what's going on our I think our actually our member base is up to 8,000 today, if not oh, okay. more. So our LinkedIn is going uh, up daily, which is really exciting. <laughs> We're excited about hitting the 10,000 mark. And uh, the members that we have are, you know, founders and CEOs for large companies as well as startups, but also entry-level recent graduates. So it's really a great opportunity to kind of bridge that gap in be able to bring all these folks to the table and make sure that they engage. So we do have events that we host at least once a quarter, if not more. Now it's been a little bit difficult with the pandemic, but even when we run them virtually, we try to have networking breakout sessions so that, you know, someone who is a, a little bit junior and new or interested coming into the fintech world, they have an opportunity to connect with uh, the more senior folks or leaders uh, within some of these companies that are a part of our team to kind of get that help and feedback or mentorship that they need to see if that's actually a good move for them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And you described yourself as a, a startup marketeer, is that what you said? So typically it's interesting because like you don't list founder yourself, you know, on, on your resume. So you're surrounded by founders. You operate obviously with founders, you know, a lot. What's that like? Because I have some of those experiences where I'm sort of second or third or, you know, first sales professional, you know, in a startup. I've done my own. But did you ever have ever have the bug that, you you know, you sort of aspire to be a founder someday or you like being part of that that team? You know, because it's, it's interesting to hear you describe yourself as a, a startup person. And uh, I'm curious how that fits into, you know, sort of future or maybe never want to be a founder. 
<laughs> That's a good question. Actually, I, I have been asked that question many times. Is it, I it haven't it's not for me yet. I'm not there. I haven't felt the need for it. I do really enjoy, I'm very passionate about what I do. So when you go in a startup mode, you oftentimes end up with similar minded people. So, you know, a lot of, and, and working for founders can be great and it can be really difficult, right? So because it's their baby and it, it's about finding that balance with someone who trusts you and says, I think it's a Steve Job quotes or, or whoever it is that says, you know, you have to hire people who are best for the job and have the knowledge for the job and, and the smartest for that job versus uh, trying to macromanage it uh, across the board, which is, I think, is a challenge for many founders, right? It's their baby. They're very protective about it. I think that is the biggest challenge that I have had working in startups. And marketing, unfortunately, is one of those things when everyone, no matter how big or small, they think they know they know it or they know it better. <laughs> <laughs> they can do it better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, those are some great stories. And I think like many product based founders or, you know, passionate idea founders, you know, like really embedded in the, the thing they want to do, they're maybe not as interested in thinking about like, how do I remessage this for consumption? Like, how do I make this easy to buy and describe? It's actually like a an uncomfortable feeling because you're like, no, 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 no. Don't distill my thing down into these simple, pithy little marketing statements. It's complicated. It's important. I worked my whole life on this. I need to write pages upon pages, you know, but spot on. <laughs> you have to have that, I don't know, grit and probably diplomacy that would allow you to kind of go, yes, it's that important. And you know, here's how we need to talk about it. I, I'm sure you have dozens of stories, you know, relative to that, because I've sort of I've had to go through that myself and be like, oh, I really want to write a lot about this because we do so much. But no, no, don't do that because it's impossible to buy it. Then. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is actually I think that's spot on. Uh, that is like one of your first challenges. And I, I have done a lot of product marketing. So when I come in, it's, you know, that including, you know, what is our mission? What is our vision? And oftentimes, you know, they're so deep into it that they're like, I have the best possible product ever. Why is nobody buying this? It must be something wrong with the marketing. And it's like, well, did you actually test the market? Did you do X, Y, Z? And, you know, I'm looking at the market today. I mean, I know at some a certain point a few years ago, it was diff more difficult to get funding and, and do raises. But now the valuations for, you know, a Series A, I have actually a friend or a fellow board member, you know, their Series A was 100 million, which is Series A. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, usually you're used to 5 to 10. So I think also that has changed a lot. So, and, and you just have to be careful. I think one of the questions I always ask when founders reach out to me is, you know, do you have a selling product? Have you looked at the market fit? And, and, and right away, you know, 90% will just get offended right off the bat from that question. But it's a very important question because if you only raise tiers A, you need to be careful then you don't need marketing. Maybe you need to wait to do additional funding and then you bring in your marketing team and you feel comfortable to doing that spend because you know there is a fit for your offering. Or you bring in marketing to help you with the messaging and so forth. But oftentimes, unfortunately, you know, the, the idea of marketing in the startup world has been historically, um, you know, I don't know, prior to this past two years, I've been a large company, but 
prior to that, it's been always, let me give you, I want to go from 100,000 to 10 million, and I want to spend $10,000 doing Google ads. And that's going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, people having the idea of what the solution is prior to even engaging your expertise and, you know, paid media potentially is a good amplifying channel, but immediately asking for that demonstrates that we haven't in any you way. You know your audience, right? I think that's Yeah, right. It. Which paid media are you going to go? Are they going to be, if you're selling to businesses, are they going to be searching on keywords on Google? Or are they going to look for referral in, you know, CIO.com? So it, it's it's just this notion that, you know, you have to be receptive to bring in someone who has their expertise, who's going to guide you, but you have to be open to, you know, that feedback and be able to actually build out those base course and, and i will tell you like you can go in a large company today and they still they're still buyer personas like there's just this getscape because you know just for market because it's very important for marketing oftentimes to generate revenue because you're just seen as um a cost center oftentimes unfortunately so it's just you know huge need almost i mean confusion i think between what sales and marketing is where oh. there's just a rush <laughs> man we could go on and on about that you know yeah Absolutely. And the incessant battle between, you know, sales and marketing, which I think is bizarre. You know, I, I'm an advocate for, I don't know, full revenue focused funnel, you know, it's sort of like, why are we doing this? Except that we want someone to pay us money for things. And I think the biggest challenge that you might relate to this and we get approached by companies, it's just, if, if you haven't really nailed go to market, that's that's a very different world than, you know, sort of growth and amplification of a thing that we know works already. And go to market might be construed as a marketing problem, but that's the really gritty sort of unscalable stuff of like, I just need you to get somebody of, of remote significance to actually use this thing on a regular basis and then tell us about it. Like that's, that's all I care about. And that's probably your network. That's way before you set up channel and partnership arrangements. Like you make a product, you really know, got to know how to sell or get somebody to use the thing on a consistent basis prior to pouring gas on the fire. You don't certainly don't start off with, with paid media. You, you start, you know, work that work that network. Why did you invent a solution for a thing that nobody ever asked about? Yeah, yeah that's unfortunately, I mean, the, the challenge that you see constantly and people always want to have something to poke on, right? So where's the fault? It can't be, you know, I think in the, in the startup world, it can't be the founder or, you know, the solution or whatever offering the product that the company does, because that would be a major problem. So, and then in larger organization, it's kind of like, well, we're in a rush. We have to show the demand for this, right? So, or, or, you know, show that people are interested, therefore let's fuel out marketing. So it's a, it's a huge challenge and it takes a lot uh, to kind of change it around. And I think for marketing to come in and say, it's not marketing's role, but essentially you need that strong marketing voice and be enabled to say those things and say, you know, hey, stop 
look through this. This is how you should run it. But, you know, once again, your go-to markets are so complex. You're going to work with sales. You're going to work with product or solutions. You're going to work, you know, with engineers. Like it, it just goes, you know, it's a full circle with different personalities, different people from different backgrounds and getting them all to a table. I mean, it's just, yeah. Comes back to that diplomacy then again. I mean, like, what are the tips? How do you do that? I'm certain that so many people in the audience are are hearing that and going, yes, that's me. And, and you're almost in this like lead from the middle, prove yourself type of situation at the same time as being thrown, you know, absurd metrics that you have to meet with no budget. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's actually the of marketing. But yeah, no, I mean, for me, I have, I've had many challenges with it. I don't think I've been successful um, in that role up until um, today. I still have my challenges, but I think what has really, um, enable me is the strong leadership that I have behind me who actually is very, you know, you drive this, you share your opinion is go for it. Knock on wood. So far it hasn't, you know, and it can be a backlash, right? It, it's just very, it's a very sensitive matter, right? So whenever there's a lot of egos that might be hurt when you're in a process like that, because, you know, you have someone who have poured in their soul into creating the solution. It could be someone else who, and it could be on the sales side when they have no interest of selling, right? So you, you're just dealing with a lot of different backgrounds, people with different goals and agendas, right? So kind of, and, and marketing is not essentially your role to, to bring all these together. Your job is to market the offering someone to deliver to say, hey, here's a solution, take it to market. But I think we will oftentimes market you find us in that role and situation. I have certainly in my career. And I think that's actually the definition I always say with being a startup marketeer. And even if you're today, I'm in a, in a large organization, but we always say we run like a startup because you will take that role. Well, you might go in a large organization and you have a traditional marketing role when there's a seat, you're, you're, you know, here's the product, write the copy of a brochure, you take it to hand it to someone else who's going to put it on the website, right? There's not this whole cohesive built from scratch, and shaping it throughout. And I think that's actually the definition between being a startup marketeer and, and I think traditional marketeers. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's probably the same for all startup positions of any sort. You, know, so you have to do all the things and have this broad understanding. Like, you know, you almost have to have the disposition that I might be asked at any day to do COO work or product work. Or if I can't code, at least I have to be able to sit with engineers and change the way that they think about it into words that people who are not us think about. You know, marketing is about reaching the other uh, who have no idea why we do this or what we're doing. And it must be hard, I think, at times to, to come in because I've struggled to do this myself in my own projects. It's like, just pause and think about like, it's kind of fluffy to talk about mission and vision and, you know, culture and these, these things. But I know in the sales seat, you know, those things come through a lot. People do business with, with people. And if you have a soulless sort of presentation of solution, it doesn't really play out in your favor. And, and that's, that's hard to get a bunch of uh, opinionated people to all come around on. Oh no, we will have, two sentences that describe what we do. And this is, the, I guess this is the nature of consulting, which I saw you did some as well. How, how does consulting fit in the mix of, of your journey? So I, I was between two startup, well, at 
finished a startup job that you know didn't go through. We didn't raise as promised as I joined a company. And the consulting side is very different. So I did it for a very short time and actually did it on fun projects. So helping to open a, a hotel upstate New York, building some websites. I've done a lot of that. Kind of the, you know, my website team today will say, oh my God, another QA from you. So are you sure you're on the right team? So, you know, being a part of a marketing and a startup is you build up your website from scratch. I also come from a design background. So for me to have a vision of what I want to look and feel to the voice and tone be is, is something that I'm very passionate about comes to me very naturally. So when I was doing consulting, that was some of the work that I supported with, you know, updating website, designing and so forth. I think it's really tough to be on the on the outside personally, because I am, I think it has to do with the passion, right? So if it's the company you're with, it's oftentimes, you know, who's going to look up what your work, they're going to say, who is this person who, you know, did this thing, and there's one head of marketing for XYZ or so that's kind of your reputation and that's how I always see it. It's my reputation, it's my legacy, the work I do. So it has to be in it has to be very well done and I will go into a fight for it if I have to, right? So I will make sure that, you know, you want to write five paragraphs of the offering. I'm going to convince you that these two paragraphs are the way to go. So there's a different level of I think engagement there versus if you're consulting, you will you essentially can't go much back, right? You can send your recommendations, but if the founder or owner of the place wants to do a runway, you just say, okay, I'm going to do it your way. You you can advise them, but you know, you, you just, you're not going to argue about it further. And I think that's really the difference between, you know, if you're on the outside, the agency side or consulting versus. I mean, hearing that description, I, I would say there are probably a lot of people in marketing that feel disempowered in that way, even being in-house. And so, you know, the permission you've given yourself to go to bat for something that you feel ownership for, you know, it, it, that's an interesting hook there. What does what does uh, fighting Philippa look like? You know, because I, 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 you've also talked to, you know, it seemed to resonate with the idea of like the diplomat, you know, sort of getting getting things done by bringing groups together. And then, you know, how, how do you shift into the fight mode? And and I asked that question thinking about it from the standpoint of I am very clearly not a woman in business, but you read about how, you know, like gender differences in in aggressiveness are perceived, you know, positively for a male versus uh, a female. So I just wonder how how the fight fits in there and how you you pull that off. Honestly, it doesn't work well, right? One thing I've learned, actually, I think you, you when we were chatting earlier, it was, you know, what advice would you give to other people is when I look at back in my career, whenever I might have failed or maybe fail is a hard word, but felt like, you know, it hasn't gone the way I would have wanted to or I haven't grown as fast as I wanted to. It's been, I always look at myself and say, you know, what did I do wrong? What should I have done? And politics has not been my thing from day one, right? I always blame it that, you know, I come from a Swedish background. We were very honest and so forth. Just my personality. I'm very straightforward and tell you as it is. And as a woman, 
it absolutely does not benefit you. I have, you know, heard from other coworkers after I left the job that, you know, the CEO was offended this one time because you said this and therefore, you know, they you hurt their ego. That's why, you know, they made your life miserable for X, Y, Z amount of time. So it, th- these are, you know, real life experiences I've learned from and you have to be careful. And, and I think it really goes down to who you work for. That is extremely important. I think people, and I think there's a quote about this as well. It's, you know, people don't leave their jobs or companies they leave their managers, right? Who they report to and who they're working for. Um, And working for someone who will empower you to do that is extremely important and doesn't happen oftentimes, especially as a woman, because if you raise your voice to a certain, I mean, I had actually this conversation with my coworker the other day. He replied to an email, wrote something all caps. And I said, if I wrote that email with all caps reply, you know, the hell would break loose. Like there's, there would be this, and he's like, what? No, I always do that. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like that, And that's the difference. That's the reality, right? It's um, extremely challenging. You just have to find that balance, but you have to also make sure that you work in the right place that is open for that, right? So if you are working for a leader who doesn't want to hear the truth, doesn't want to see the truth, there's no, there's no point for you to try to do that. So I think that's the challenge that you're going to have as a woman. Well, as anyone would, but even being a woman is even worse, right? Because we always talk about emotions and, and how you, you know, that gets out of hand. I personally has have been trying to, I think I've toned it down a little bit, but that's not, you know, what others would, would tell me who work with I'm gonna me. I'm going to try to get you to yell at me in all caps <laughs> right now. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you, you keep it very professional, right? And, and I think, but you have to be, stand your ground. I think that's the difference and not be defensive, which is something I have learned throughout my career. I think a lot of times I, I would become defensive. While that wasn't my intentions, I was trying to be nice by being defensive, if that makes sense, and explain myself. But then I learned, you know, th- that's not how you go about it. You just stand your ground, knowing that you what you've done. If you have done something wrong, you apologize for it. But if you haven't, you know, keep the respect, maintain the respect, but know your boundaries, um, and that's the best you can do. But then, unfortunately, you know, as the world is, is you depends on the workplace, depends on who you work for. I think those are all key. Yeah, and I, I listen to that, and I think you know all those things are true and good professional health for anyone. And then I. I hear the additional layer of, you know, as a professional woman, having to be hypersensitive, carry that extra weight of of perception that you don't get maybe the benefit of the doubt for how a male would act, you know, in the in the workplace. And that's got to be like that's got to be a common topic, I would imagine that, you know, so like, well, why do I need to reserve you know, 10% of my brain all the time to paying attention to the sensibilities when I just want to dish out my opinion with all caps and not be, you know, sort of held accountable for that. Yeah. Um, I think that that's just a different challenge that we're not going to be able to address. I think what we can do and ask for those who are leaders in the organizational large organization is to empower the women and make sure that they're promoted in time, make sure that you put them in the forefront. I'm actually lucky today. I work with someone who compared to anyone else I've ever worked for, he will absolutely have my back and, and support me in those areas while I work with the, you know, 
a traditional large global company. And I have personally not seen it before. And that's what keeps me going. That's also what will keep me stay. But would that change? And would I go work for someone else? Even if we'd be in the same organization, I think that would be a different story because it's all about, you know, having that empowerment. And I think that's something our leaders need to think about is, you know, empower the people who are working for you to make sure that, you know, you, I mean, you're going to have that bias in your head, right? That's just something that unfortunately, uh, nothing that we can solve for, but, you know, just think twice before you speak up or so, or, you know, how you're leading your team. I think those are some key um, elements. I would love to know how, you know, quickly assess the person that you might work for, because you, you mentioned that, that the biggest variable for you is be hyper aware of and attuned to the person that you are thinking about working for. And, and you're so right. You know, people quit jobs because of the people they work for, not that they don't like their job. And uh, what's your rubric or, you know, sort of like, how do you do that? Because I, everybody would benefit from that. I think that 100% of our audience would say, yeah, I've worked for an a-hole here or there. And, you know, I wish I had known or was able to suss that out and maybe you have some skills to share on how to suss that out earlier and and not hate your job. Oh, I wish I had that. I actually don't. <laughs> Just I experience really don't. of having, you know it when you do it wrong and it's too late, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you have said something and suddenly they blame something on you that's totally irrelevant, then that's, you know, when Oops. you hit a nerve. Yeah. Yeah. Hit a nerve. Yeah. And you're speaking to someone who has been fired six times. So, you know, I, I, I am one that walks in the room and, and, you know, flares my New Yorker at times. And I, I've also learned that sort of how to temper and, and control that and that I'm better suited to be a founder with a partner who keeps me under control, you know? So I think that combination of, of, of bring your team along for the ride and the people that that tolerate your insanity <laughs> is also a good strategy. That's where you know good startups, I think, come from is those those early teams. And maybe you are collecting people along your your journey for your your future founder experience. I do have a dream team. I do have a dream team. I always say that to the team that I lead at NYC Fintech Women. My goodness, they are absolutely amazing. You know, some of them are just mind readers. I, I will, there will be things where I'm just like, oh, I can't believe you're not working for me for my real job. You know, because <laughs> NYC Fintech, we're having a volunteering opportunity, right? We're on the board and, and this is just, you know, pro bono, us doing it because of our passion. But it's one of those, you know, I'm like, I could bring this person and, and my life would be so easy at work. You know, she can, she's not even in marketing and she can nail this and, and, I get a lot of those. I have, you know, a good pocket of dream teams throughout my careers. And, you know, going back to the, the, to the founder part, I think um, what really happens is, you know, for me is I might have not been fired, but you just lose motivation, right? So if you cannot scale and make a difference, and for me personally, I like to make a difference. That's very important to me. If I'm not growing and what I'm doing, then I'm mine as well, not working. I know it's a weird mindset as a personality thing, but for me, it's, you know, it has to be a constant change, but improvement, right? So if I can move the needle, if you're constantly, you know, trying to hit the same offering with the same channels, or you don't want to make certain investments, then what am I doing there? Right. And 
I'm just not going to sit there and, and pretend working. That's just not my personality because I'm not growing as a person. So that's kind of, you know, when you do the jump and you're like, okay, you know what, let me look for my next opportunity where my skill sets, where my, what I can bring to the table. I personally believe that, you know, you have to always develop yourself. That's kind of the the key. If I'm not learning something new, then, you know, how am I going to scale up? But I think it's also, you know, personalities, different roles that you're holding and, and what you see your career going. I think that's, that's good advice. And there's often a fear of bouncing to the next thing when you're not happy is like, there's a risk or, you know, sort of taking yourself out of a stable situation. And, uh, it sounds like maybe you haven't, you haven't succumbed to the idea of that, that risk. And if you need to go, you need to go do something else. And it, it seems to turn out better in many cases. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I am, I agree with you. I'm not, the grass is not always greener. So you have to count your losses and your wins, right? So if I would move here, sure, they have an exciting offering. The pay might be better, but, you know, am I working for someone who I want to work for? Or, you know, it, it's it's all about these things. I think you have to wait when you're making a move. And I think it gets more difficult the more senior you get, especially if you have certain, you know, goals in your career that you want to hit. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I, I just had this thought experiment pop into my head. You know, I would love to know, people will often talk about, and and I think, that because there are a lot of male dominated spaces, you know, you're talking about like diversity from the standpoint of bring up the percentage of women, bring up the percentage of minorities, people from different backgrounds, et cetera. If, if you were to be in a team that was dominated by and predominantly women, what would be the benefit of saying, Hey, we need to diversify with some men. What would they bring that would balance the team? We often don't, think about it that way. And it might be a good exercise for men to think about, here's what I bring to the table. If I were to think about myself as the balancing force, not the force to be balanced. Yeah, I have been actually on both sides. So I have been in other organization with a lot of women. I am not necessarily a fan of it. Uh, to be honest, I think you need that balance. Men in general, honestly, I don't even think it, it has to do with gender. It's about personalities, right? So sometimes you can, it's easier to be straight up with men and say, as long as they're not offended, you know, their ego as long as they're not the fragile woman, ego founders. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. right. Yeah. You can be very more straight up and say, you know, this is the situation and they don't take it personal. While women might. And, and men tend to oftentimes not take it personal or they do at certain points and then you realize, you know, oh, okay, that's what happened. So I think, you know, even bringing men in, you know, all women groups or, or you know, organizations or departments, whichever it would be, you it's really up to the person who's joining, right? If, if oftentimes I think what will balance it out is you have male who are not, you know, who are very secure in what they're doing. They don't have a lot of bias, but then they can bring that neutrality. You know, there's an open conversation about the issues and the problems we have versus having a different approach when there's a lot of like sensitivities or, or more attacking someone personally, we're attacking, you know, when the conversation is about a job. And I think that's, or, or someone actually considering it as an attack versus seeing it as just constructive critique. I think that's the difference that you will see, at least from my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, what you're describing are just like 
good professional behaviors no matter who you are. And it's so interesting that in this conversation, we've all linked this to, you know, some kind of default gender trait. I think you totally nailed that. And that that's worth exploring. Hey, anybody who shows up and acts like a jerk is probably a jerk, you know, or has, you know, some history that, you know, contributed to, you know, a bad mental model that then manifests as, as bias or, you know, poor behaviors. And that makes it more palatable for everybody to say, hey, can't we all just agree on uh, some core values, right? And the way we should treat others. I don't know. That's interesting. That just popped into my head. So thank you for, thank you for engaging my thought experiment. <laughs> As we run into the timing of the episode, I always ask guests, put on your, your futurist hat and think, you know, maybe a few years down the road. So many of these conversations are now colored by pandemic and, you know, the great resignation and changing in labor. And I just wonder what other things are on your mind, like trends that you kind of say, hey, everybody should pay attention to this, you know, from the seat that, that you've sat in and, you know, marketing leadership and, you know, other organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that people really need to pay attention to is I think there's a lot of buzz and t buzz. I'm going to say buzz because I think it's a lot of companies have been using this as a marketing tool, which is diversity inclusion. I think it's going to be important more and more as, you know, when it comes to ESG, sustainability and everything else, the social responsibility, you know, corporate governance and other pieces that will play in these, you know, especially in financial services today, right? So, you have City with a female CEO, you have NASDAQ who has a female CEO, and a lot of these companies have certain criterias that they follow, whether it's the vendors they're bringing on board, whether their partners are bringing on board. And I think people really need to pay attention to that, you know, because you're not going to be able to change your board or leadership team overnight. Um, I mean, maybe you can, but, you know, it's not something that's easily done. So start thinking about it now is, you know, how am I going to show my forefront? And then actually that trickles down to the people are joining you, right? So you want to bring in employees that have, you know, X amount of experience in certain areas or really are dedicated to your job or, or passionate about what you're, what you're driving to. Or in general, like people really care about, you know, who they're working for and how that looks like uh, at the top. And if they want to be a part of the identity, and I think that's where, you know, that great resignation is probably coming apart because people are fed up, right? So you had the, the pandemic that we went through, there were layoffs. How did you treat your people during that layoff? You think that you spared them by keeping them, giving them double the job or, you know, switch their salaries, whatever it could be. But you actually didn't, right? So you weren't there for them when we were going through a hard time. But as an employer, you think you probably did them a favor. And I think people forget about thinking about those things that, you know, how you make people feel emotionally in their jobs and roles because people spend most of their days, lives working, right? So especially in US, I'm actually from Sweden. I think that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but I think those things are very important. I think those are the trends that you're going to see that it's more important than ever. And I think people will not actually care to make that change until businesses see that they're losing money on it. When, you know, this company XYZ doesn't want to work with you because you don't have um, 
the right social governments or other things in place that you should be having. And I think, unfortunately, that's what companies are going to do. They're just going to say, oh, I'm doing well, I'm doing well, and then they're going to hit a wall. So I think, you know, a lot of them need to think about it early on. And it can't be just a marketing game because people are going to see through it, right? That's actually not something that mar- we can market it for you once you put those in place. But we can't do it if you don't have that in place, right? I can't make up your board. I can't make up your teams and leadership teams or or any other, you know, actual reality of, you know, what, what's in, inside of your company. So you can paint as much as you want with marketing, but actually that's not going to solve your problem. I think that's something really every company needs to start thinking about. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. Very insightful. I, I'm just going to call it right here on Leaders of B2B that you are going to be the CEO of, of something. So, you know, we, we will... We'll say that that you know we we called it right here, and we look forward to uh, that future interview where you, you get to do part two, uh, CEO of, of something. So super cool to have you on. I mean, great great insights, and you know I love I love the topics, and it's it's obviously you're very thoughtful about your work and your your teams and the, the people that that you collaborate with, and I think those are all fantastic lessons. If anybody wants to follow up or connect with you, uh, what are the best channels to do that? LinkedIn, Felipe Nogani. That's the best way. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be a great episode. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.